All right, we're in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. I'm sure all of you will agree today that we live in a world filled with isms and ideologies, all of which claim to be the best course for human existence. Capitalism, communism, socialism, spiritism, individualism, and the isms go on and on, all representing different beliefs about how the world should be governed, how people should live, what is best for society. But the problem with all of these is another ism, and that is humanism. Man's determination to create his own utopia, his own paradise. It's all a rejection, really, of the first two chapters we find in the Bible, the book of beginnings, Genesis, which informs us that God created the universe and humanity. He provided a perfect environment in which the first couple could live. In this paradise that we call the Garden of Eden, God provided their every need and expected them to trust him for all things good and to obey his word. And the result would be perfect harmony with their creator and the continuation of a perfect world which they would populate. But Genesis chapter 3 tells us that this perfect condition did not last. It portrays for us the first temptation of man that resulted in all the evil and wickedness that we see in the world today, including in ourselves. The problem of evil itself Individual sinfulness, crime, hatred, war, man's inhumanity to man, disease, famine, all the isms that are out there in the world stem from this incident that we just read. God relates to us how the first couple who lived in a sinless world, who were innocent in regard to evil, who had everything they needed, fell to temptation and plunged the world into sin and death. And as a result of that act, every human being has been born into this world a naturally sinful creature who proves that by committing individual wrong actions. Fortunately, God has devised a way that we might be forgiven of our sin and come into right relationship with him. The first hint of the gospel is also in Genesis chapter 3. The coming of the last Adam is introduced there. Now today we're going to focus on these uh, first verses that we read, the first scene of this horrible event which describes for us Satan's Subtle seduction, which caused the first woman to be deceived into disobeying the Lord and the first man to knowingly sin against him. There's much for our admonition today because the tempter follows the same pattern to seduce us to sin today. So let's ask God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful that you tell us all these things in your word, that you created the heavens and the earth, 
that you provided a place for the first man, the first woman whom you created to live in. And Lord, uh, that, that environment was perfect. And yet, Lord, we find that uh, our representative heads fell to the temptation of Satan, which all of us have experienced in our life today. So, Lord, we just pray you'll help us to understand that uh, the tempter still tries to move us away from God, to keep us from relationship to God, to keep us in his clutches that we might die and uh, go with him to the lake of fire. Lord, we don't want that to happen. Uh, Indeed, most of us who are here today have trusted you and do not have to fear that. But Lord, we still have to deal with the temptations of Satan. And help us, Lord, to realize that he is very seductive. And if we keep to the word of God, we can defeat him and his wiles. So bless your word today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, today we're going to deal with the first issue, and that has to do with Satan and his subtle temptations and seductions toward us as people. And the first thing we see is in the very first word, uh, and that is the crafty character of the serpent whom we will identify as Satan. Verse 1 begins with the word now. So that introduces to us something new, a new section. Uh, Another toledot, as the Hebrew puts it, that began back in chapter 2, which defines for us some of the history uh, of what happened to God's good creation. And a new character is introduced here called the serpent. Now let's take a look here at how he is described and maybe kind of add to this from Scripture. First of all, there have been many who have wondered about uh, who this thing is or what this thing is. But as you read the text there, you almost have to say, well, the serpent is a snake. Because it says here that it's one of the beasts of the field or one of the wild beasts, wild animals that God made. So first, it was an actual snake, which we all love so much today, right? Uh, There aren't very many people who uh, like snakes. But this suggests that its normal habitat may have been outside of the garden or at least not among the docile animals. It was a wild beast. And it's interesting uh, that the beast in the book of Revelation, the word there also means a wild beast, an untamed animal. Now, in the ancient world, the serpent uh, was really kind of an ambivalent uh, creature. It was either revered or it was repugnant. It was held in either reverence or disdain. It was associated with life or recurring youth because it was an animal that shed its skin. It was also associated with death and chaos as well as wisdom. So really kind of opposite uh, attitudes toward the serpent. But when we come to the word of God, the serpent is associated with a number of things as well. It's associated with death with shrewdness, as a divine opponent or an antagonist to God. And in one case, it was actually a symbol of healing. You remember the story of uh, Moses in the wilderness when the people judged 
uh, were judged by God because of their disobedience. He sent fiery serpents among them. And the resolution of the problem was for Moses to mold uh, a, a symbol of a serpent, place it on a pole, and if you looked at that in faith, you would be healed. And of course, uh, in today's um, medicine, you have that kind of an image as the, the sense of a doctor being a healer. Now, these are some of the things associated with the serpent in the Old Testament. Now, let's take a look at the character of the serpent. It says, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Well, in its first appearance in the Bible, the serpent is a crafty creature, sinister in nature. The word crafty, uh, also translated subtle or clever, is an ambiguous term. It can be used in a positive way or a negative way. Uh, here, it's obviously negative as the serpent is trying to get the woman to disobey God, but it's also used in a good sense and it's related to wisdom. Adam and Eve were tempted in this area of the knowledge of uh, good and evil, wisdom in that regard. They were not allowed to eat of the tree that would give them knowledge of good and evil. And so the temptation was focused on that, on an aspect of wisdom, but one that God forbade them. And we often run in trouble, uh, in trouble when we want to experience more knowledge than what is good for us. And true wisdom is realizing that God forbids things that are harmful for us and he only sanctions things that are good for us. And when we try to ascertain the good and the bad for ourselves, we often fail. We're often wrong. And we can see that operating in the world today. The idea of subtlety can also refer to the concealment and the movement of a snake or a serpent. It's easily hidden from view. How many times have you been unaware of a snake until you practically stepped on it? And your first response is to probably kill it. <laughs> uh, its movement is also very stealthy and silent as it slithers upon the earth. And perhaps in this situation, the most astounding characteristic is that the serpent spoke to Eve, but she doesn't seem to be surprised or frightened by that phenomenon. Now, does that mean there was some type of telepathy or communication between man and animal? Well, I don't really think so. Since verbal communication is one area that separates human beings from animals. However, Eve perhaps had not yet been made aware of this, or perhaps she had not yet been introduced to a snake or a serpent. And so uh, it, it wouldn't have seemed odd to her. Or she may have been so stunned by its sudden appearance that she didn't even think about it. But anyways, we can identify the serpent in another way. It's clear from 
the conversation that goes on here that this creature is more than just a snake. There's something sinister and evil controlling it because it's trying to get the first woman to do something wrong, not good. Something that was heard and understood in the conversation God had with Adam is coming out here. This, the, the serpent is aware of this. It seems to be something beyond the natural realm. Satan has subtly entered the garden in the form of a serpent or by controlling the serpent for his purposes to tempt the first woman and man to go against the will of God. As we go through the Bible, there is not an explanation to us as to the origin of evil in the universe. It doesn't explain to us the creation of the angels. It doesn't directly specify the fall of Satan or how he got into the garden, but it must have occurred sometime before the fall of man since he is the character that's behind the seduction of the serpent. On one occasion, the Lord Jesus told his critics that they were of their father, the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning and a liar and the father of lies. He was alluding to Satan when he said that, all the way back to the beginning. In the book of Revelation, we come across this same name. Satan is called there in chapter 20, the dragon, the serpent of old. So he's identified as a serpent, and so we can also identify that the first appearance of him in that way is way back in Genesis chapter 3. Now, the Old Testament never identifies Satan as the serpent. It doesn't say that specifically, but it's not difficult for us to see that it is he who is using the serpent for his purposes. And since then, he's become the tempter of humanity, the accuser and the adversary of the saints, the prince of darkness, the false ruler of this world. And his purpose is to keep people from being saved and harass those and defeat those who have been saved. And it all starts in the Garden of Eden. Now let's take a look at this conversation between the serpent, Satan, and the woman in verse 1 through 5. And we're going to see the the tactics that he uses to seduce the woman away from obedience. First of all, in verse 1, he casts doubt on God's word. Look at what he says. He said to the woman, Has God indeed said, Has he really said this? Did he really say, uh, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So he's casting doubt on what God has said. I'm really surprised by that. Are you sure that's what God intended? I wonder why he would forbid you anything. 
It's a subtle way of creating a question, a doubt about the veracity, the truth of God's word. And once you begin to doubt or question what God says, is it not easier for you not to do what he says? And Satan uses the same tactic today when it comes to the word of God. Do you really believe the Bible is the word of God? Hardly anybody believes that anymore. Uh, Don't you think it's really a book of fairy tales that somebody made up? Do you really believe you can be forgiven of all your sins? Is Christ's sacrifice enough? Don't you have to do something yourself to make sure you're right with God? That's only fair, isn't it? Or how can you say you are a Christian when you still commit sin? Not a day goes by where you don't do something wrong. How can you really be a Christian? Or you might say, does God really expect you to live a completely holy life? There are a lot of areas of, uh, where Christians disagree with one another. Uh, you can fudge a little bit and, and here and there won't, won't really matter that much, will it? Or, you know, if you, if you do sin and you ask God to forgive you, he says he will do that, so just go ahead and sin. It's okay, you can just go pray and everything will be all right. So Satan is always casting doubt on the truth of God's word, and he says to you, has God indeed said this? Do we have to be careful of the types of questions that we ask and the doubts that we entertain? Then we see here that he also disparages the goodness of God. And what he does there is he focuses on what you don't have rather than what you do have. He says here, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What's with that? You mean there's one tree you can't eat of? He's not thinking about probably the hundreds, maybe thousands of trees you can eat from, just the one prohibition that you can't eat from. The one thing uh, uh, that he can present as a doubt, as questionable, he does. And he casts doubt on the goodness of God by disallowing you that one thing. And he seems to portray, well, God's kind of holding you back from something, isn't he? Now we know that that tree that God created, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was good because he made it and he put it in the garden and he declared everything in there was good. So the tree in and of itself was good. But it also was the one tree forbidden to them. There had to be a test of their faith, their trust, their obedience in the garden to see if they really loved God, they would do what God wanted them to do. So just one area where they could be tested for their faith. And now the devil begins to attack that area and he begins to twist Eve's thinking to believe that what God forbids is really good, therefore God's not good. 
because he forbid it in the first place. And we think today, if we're a believer in Christ, God has given us all the riches of Christ in our salvation. He's benefited us material, uh, materially in many ways. But then uh, we, go, we, we hardly go through a day without griping and complaining about something. About what we don't have or about what came into my life today. Uh, the circumstances that are there. And we complain about the little insignificant things when we compare them to the great riches that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is all Satan's subtle temptation to get us <clears throat> focused on what we don't have rather than what we do have in Christ. <clears throat> now Eve responds to this. And here we see her lack of scripture memorization. <clears throat> Something that we, we try a lot to do and we're sometimes successful, sometimes not. But this shows us the importance of getting it right. Getting it perfect, if you will. Because it seems like she got things muddled up. Now let's remember that when God gave that command, he gave it to the man. And Eve was created later. At least that seems the way it goes in, in the story that's given to us. So Adam would then have had to convey this command to Eve, or God gave it again to both of them on some occasion. <clears throat> but this is what she says, <clears throat> verse 2. We may eat the, tr- the, the fruit of the trees of the garden, But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now let's go through this. First of all, she is correct in the first phrase, but she leaves out an important word. Satan has said, has God, which means the Almighty, said this. And she responds with the same terminology for God. Now that's significant. Uh, But before we get there, let me just back up for a second. God said, when God said you may eat of the trees, he said you may eat freely. She left out that word back in 2.16. The word freely indicates abundance. In other words, you can eat to your heart's content until you're fully satisfied. So she left out that kind of gracious, abundant word. Next, she focused on the location of the tree of knowledge in the midst of the garden. That's where it's located. Rather than its significance that it was a tree that gave you the knowledge of good and evil, which is God's prerogative, not man's. Adam and Eve were not given the prerogative of choosing for themselves what was good and evil. That was God's choice and God's purpose of making sure they didn't eat of that tree. Then, as I began with, she uses a different name for deity. She uses the same name that Satan used, the name God. Now, Satan... Uh, can use the word God, but he's not in a relationship with God uh, that would cause him to call him Yahweh or Lord. 
Lord is the covenant name of God, whereby he becomes in grace everything that we need. And if you read through chapter 1, uh, the term God or the Almighty One is exclusive to creation and all the creative acts of verse 1. As God the Almighty, there's no man yet uh, except toward the end. But then in chapter 2, when it ex- explains relationships between the God and man and his creation of Eve and all the things associated with their relationship, the term Lord is used. Lord God, over and over and over and over again. Now we're back to just God, the Almighty, not the personal God, but the, the God that's out there someplace. So he's kind of divorcing the thought that you've got a relationship with this God And you better do what you can to make sure you keep that relationship by being obedient. So she's using a different terminology for deity. And Satan's tactic is to separate the personal closeness the woman should have with the Lord, making, again, it easier to disobey. It's easier to disobey a God who's transcendent someplace out there who's not really taking a whole lot of uh, care in what I'm doing. Then she adds something to God's word about you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. God didn't say that. God didn't say you couldn't touch it. Now, we're not exactly sure why she put that in there or added that. It may be that Adam said, well, you know, this is God's purpose, so we're not even going to touch that tree, so just stay away from it. Adam might have added that. We don't know. It probably would have been a good thing not to touch it because then you're less tempted to eat it. But it seems that she used this in the sense to make the prohibition even a little harsher than it might have been. We can't even touch it. Now, why would God do that type of thing? Okay, so it's something she added that probably made it seem like this is unfair. God won't even let us touch it. And finally... She makes the statement, lest you die. Now, there's another word missing there, isn't there? God said, lest you surely die. In other words, it's going to happen. That removed the emphatic nature of God's command that death is definitely going to result or or disobedience is definitely going to be resulting in something and it's death, it's separation, it's separation from God. So she's becoming ensnared in Satan's deception. So it's important for us today to understand you do not add or detract from the word of God. You get it right. It will surely get us into trouble if we don't. It's the truth of Scripture that Jesus used to defeat Satan because Satan used Scripture with him as well. Only he took it all out of context. Jesus knew the context and he used uh, Scripture to rebuke Satan and we can use it today as well. Now, we come to the fourth verse and here we see Satan's not really any longer deceptive. He is defiant. He outrightly denies what God has said. 
And incidentally, he seems to know scripture better than the woman because he quotes it right. He says in verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And what's interesting here, uh, there's one word that negates everything, right? It's the word not. He says exactly what God said, only he adds the word not. And he puts the word not in the emphatic position, which is first place in the sentence. And this is how it would read. Not you shall surely die. Not you shall surely die. That's exactly the opposite of what God said. God really wouldn't be so severe if you took one little bite, would he? Not surely die. Something so small and harmless cannot merit such a severe penalty, can it? Not surely die. So he's casting again doubt on the word of God. He's defying the word of God, and he's defying the justice of God. And are not people duped by this lie today surely a god of love will not send anybody to hell you're not going to be chastised for your sin a little indulgence now well god's just gonna shove that under the rug there are people today who claim to be a christian but they live in such a way that they deny what god says Either they're uninformed of the truth of Scripture, or they do not really believe that what God says is true. If I sin, I'm going to be dealt with. At least if I don't get it right with the Lord, like we saw in Sunday school class. And then he goes on here and indicates that God has an ulterior motive, that the woman's best interest is not in mind, again questioning the goodness of God. He says here, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. People may not be so rash today as to say, well, I'm going to be, my, I'm going to be like God. <clears throat> but that's how they live. They live as though they are God of their life. They make all the choices. They make uh, all the directives. And so they're living uh, as they themselves are their own God, choosing between the good and the evil. Problem is, they don't really know what good and evil are. But what he's saying here is God's afraid you're going to be like him. But you know what? That's true for believers, isn't it? That someday we're going to be like Christ. We're not going to be Christ. We're not going to be God. But we're going to be like him. And God wants us to develop that character even now. To be like the Lord Jesus Christ in the way he lived. In his attitudes, in his actions, in his character. But... How can you be like God if you disobey him? That's the whole point he was missing. You cannot take a shortcut 
without paying severe consequences. So Satan is tempting the woman into thinking she can be wise on her own terms, and if she makes this choice to eat of that forbidden fruit, she'll be like God. She's not trusting God to make her like him in the way that he prescribed. She's going to do it herself. Somehow, it's good to have this knowledge that God's forgiven Uh, forbidden me, that you know what you need better than God knows what you need. And we can never achieve the good, we can never please God, uh, and be blessed by doubting his word, by doubting his character, by doubting his commands. But unfortunately, Satan achieves his purpose. And we see in verses 6 through 8, the calamitous outcome of Satan's subtle seduction is threefold. First of all, the outcome is disobedience to God's directive. Verse 6, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of, the, of its fruit and she ate. Now, up to this point, we've had a certain tension in the conversation, haven't we? It's going back and forth. But once the temptation is submitted to, the conclusion comes rather rapidly. She saw, she took, she ate, she gave it to her husband. So she saw, looked upon the tree in a different way than she had before. She saw that it was good for food or good to eat when God said it's not good to eat. Now, it certainly was probably pleasant to the eye, but God said you don't eat of it. So she's looking at now, wow, boy, that would really be good to eat. God was no longer the focus of her attention and her desire. Her flesh became the focus. Instead of wanting to please God, now she's wanting to please herself. See what that would taste like as well as what it will do for me. And this is further captured in the words that are used here, the word pleasant and desirable, which are synonyms. And they're also cognates of the Hebrew verb to covet. And if we went to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 21, both of those words are found there. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, etc., etc. So what is Eve doing through the eye gate? She's beginning to covet something God forbids and to take to herself the prerogative of God to choose good and evil for herself. She's coveting what God has the right to say and do. She coveted the wisdom of the knowledge that God said was not meant for her. The temptation wasn't just a general rebellion against what God said. It was a quest for wisdom, for knowledge apart from God's provision. And she thought only that good would derive from her decision of disobedience, that she would be like God and know all these kinds of things that God had not told them yet. She no longer trusts 
God's word when she looks at that fruit. So we're told that uh, she took of its fruit and she ate it. And then she gave it to her husband with her and he ate. Now that seems to indicate to me that Adam was watching all this. He was with her. Why didn't he say, wait a minute, hold on. No, he's just kind of standing back as a spectator, like a lot of husbands do, and uh, letting Eve go through with all this. And then she takes it, she eats, and she says, oh, wait a minute, uh, we're not supposed to eat that. Um, I'm going to have to tell the Lord about this. No, he takes it too. She was deceived. Adam wasn't. Adam knew exactly what he was doing. And so Adam was just as sinful as Eve on this occasion. Maybe even more so because he was not deceived. So, how our sight leads us astray. It stimulates within us selfish cravings. It causes us to covet what we do not have or to want someone what someone else has. And the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life, it's all right here in the garden. It all starts right there. And we've all submitted to it in our own life. So we see this first act of disobedience. But then what about the result? Well, we see a disappointment in the end result. We see a realization that disobedience wasn't all that great after all. And what Satan said was partially true. Verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened. He said they would be opened, but not in the way they thought they would be opened. They knew that they were naked. Well, the word naked describes a state of being devoid of protective clothing Naked in the sense of being defenseless, weak, or humiliated. So what once had been unnoticeable to them became a source of guilt and shame. And all these these feelings, these sensibilities came uh, flowing in upon them as they've disobeyed God. And now they realize it and they feel ashamed. And things aren't what they thought they would be. And in their feeble attempt to cover themselves... And hide their shame while they sew some fig leaves together and and make coverings for themselves. And at some point in time, every human being has felt the shame, the the same shame and guilt and self-disappointment that sin causes. But we try to cover our sins in many ways. Maybe we don't really believe it is sin. Maybe we blame it on somebody else. But the only real covering for sin will have to be made through sacrifice, as we'll see later on. The final outcome here is disfellowship with God, which symbolizes death in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves 
from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. First time that happened. Now, they didn't die physically immediately, but death in the Bible is portrayed as a separation. And their lives became separated from God. This is symbolic of a loss of fellowship with God and and, and spiritual death, which that's what will be the end. You'll be forever separated from God. But instead of becoming like God, instead they, they feared him and they tried to hide from him. Now the Bible tells us that the beginning of wisdom is what? It is the fear of the Lord, which means respecting him totally, trusting him fully, and obeying him unconditionally. But Adam and Eve, who started out fearing God in the right way, ended up fearing God in the wrong way. Their disobedience led them to a totally different sense of fear, a fear of uh, uh, reprobation, a fear of condemnation, a fear of trepidation. And so they hid from God. They ran from God. They separated themselves from God in the garden. They found out the hard way that disobedience to God's word has a harsh and horrible outcome. Well, folks, we can be thankful today that another Adam came into the world millennia later. That Adam came into the world also without a sinful nature. But the world that he came into was no longer perfect. It was full of darkness. It was full of sin. It was full of death. Yet when he was tempted by the serpent, Satan, he did not fail to those subtleties. He sent him packing with the word of God. And it's only through Christ, the last Adam, that we can be forgiven of sin and put back in right relationship to God. And Satan tempts us in the same way today. He tries to get us to doubt God's word and his character. When we doubt, it's much easier for us to disobey. When we get our eyes off of our manifold blessings and focus on one thing we don't have, we're tempted to complain. When we think God's too strict or somehow unfair or that we we won't get burned for disobedience, We've forgotten God's righteous judgment. We also need to remember that God's plan is for us to be like him, but according to his purpose, his word, his way, his plan, not ours. So by the grace of God, let's not fall to Satan's subtle seductions. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we're again thankful for your word today. We're thankful, Lord, that you tell us how sin and death entered the world. It wasn't very long before creation was finalized. Lord, we pray you'd help us to realize that what Adam did, what Eve did, would be what we would have done as well. They were our representative head. And Lord, we realize that uh, every day we're fallen creatures and we're dependent upon your faithfulness and your forgiveness 
And Lord, we pray today, if there's someone here who's not sure of their relationship to you, that they're in a state of separation from you in this life, and that will continue in the next life unless Christ comes into the picture. And Lord, help us as your people to realize that likely most days we're going to face some kind of temptation. Satan's going to put something out there before our eyes that we can covet, that we can desire, that will what, what we think might give us pleasure, but it's against your word, it's against your will. Help us have the discretion to, to know uh, what your will is and how to say no to Satan. So Lord, we just pray you'll use uh, your word today to speak to our hearts, to speak to our needs, and help us, Lord, through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to overcome the temptations that we might face. Bless us, Lord, now as we close, we ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.